and welcome to And Introducing, a podcast about words, about music. I'm Chris Wade. And I'm Molly O'Brien. And introducing on the drums, Mr. Chris France. Yes, today we'll be talking all about Chris France's journey with Talking Heads and Tom Tom Club, from art school music project to punk pioneers to worldwide stardom, all while nurturing his relationship with bassist Tina Weymouth, solidifying their place as rock and roll's number one married rhythm section. All that and more through his book, Remain in Love, Talking Heads, Tom Tom Club, Tina. And here to guide us through that story is the man himself, listeners, introducing drummer for Talking Heads and Tom Tom Club, it's Chris Franz. Welcome to the show, Chris. Oh, thank you very much, uh, Chris and Molly. So <laughs> thanks. It's, it's a it's a great pleasure. Thanks for being here. I heard you were calling your your book tour "Remain Online." <laughs> yeah. Yes, that's that's the name of it. That's uh, you know, I I would love to be in meeting you in person, but uh, uh, sa- sadly, sadly, we can't do that these days. So. So this is the next best thing, and thank goodness for, you know, Zoom. And t- <laughs> tonight I'm do- tonight I'm doing a, an Instagram live. Oh, oh boy! Uh, well, you know, it is uh, it is frustrating in one way, but at least it gives you a way to uh, connect through all these weird new mediums that people are are finding to uh, yeah. share performances and stuff. It's it's it is kind of fun if you're trying to find a silver lining. Yes, yes, it it could be worse, I, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I feel bad for the for the like young musicians who are, are getting going, and uh, maybe even some that aren't so young that are uh, trying to work and can't really uh, can't really work through the usual avenues that we in the usual venues. Yeah, and literally sh- in the usual venues. It's kind of driving people crazy, I think, uh, the fans and the artists, but. Uh, it's good to keep cool and, and not not rush it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, the the more we stay, the sooner we can go. Yes. Oh, that's nice. That's, right. that's nice. Thank you. <laughs> we'll dispense with the usual. Uh, how do you feel about talking heads that we usually do for the, these shows? And uh, do you want to just get into the uh, beginning of Chris's story? Yeah. Chris, Molly? Uh, Chris, what a beautiful book you wrote. Oh, thank you. Like, what thank a pleasure it was to read, honestly. Uh, oh, thank you. Just the, I mean, I feel like it is just a portrait of like a time that has been talked about a lot, but your perspective was so interesting. Um, yeah. And you have an uh, interesting upbringing. So you're from Kentucky. Yes. Father is an army lawyer. Uh, correct. Yeah. He, 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 he was a West Pointer, you know, and then he, he uh, became an officer and I, I guess the army figured out that he might be a good lawyer, so they said, "How would you like to go to law school and and we'll pay for it?" And he, he accepted that offer. It's a good deal. Always a good deal. <laughs> what, what part of Kentucky did you grow up in? Because I'm from Cincinnati. Oh, oh well, fifty miles up the river in Maysville, Kentucky, nice. Mason County. Yeah, yeah. That's well. That's where my grand. I was not born there, but that's where my grandparents lived, and I, I spent a, many a summer there. Um, nice. and also, you know, Christmas vacations and stuff. And I, I, I really identified with, uh, being a Kentuckian. <laughs> a, I, I still do. Yeah. Those, those who are proud of it, uh, you know, it, it takes courage, but, but we appreciate. Yeah. 
Well, you, I mean, your adolescence, you were in Pittsburgh living kind of like what sounded like a little beatnik lifestyle. You know, you're interested in visual art. You seem to have a lot of friends who were also interested in art. And you had the kind of vision you said in the book uh, when you were, I think, 11 years old. I may not be cool today, but one day I will be cool. I will be an artist, (laughs) maybe even play in a band. How seriously did you take that vision or did it take a while to remember that you had it in the first place? Uh, No, no, I I've sort of carried this with me (laughs) for a long time. I, I, I. I didn't have to even try to remember it. Yeah. You know, you know, there's, there's some things that you just, you know, epiphanies that you've had during your lifetime that, that some of them are good and <laughs> some of them maybe not so good. But, uh, but uh, well, I, I wanted to convey in, in this book that, that while I came from a fairly, con, I think you could say conservative, uh, my parents were my mother was a Democrat, but my father was a Goldwater Republican. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and both of them were, uh, you know, very respectable, dignified people. And, and they, they expected me to act that way, too. On the other hand, they were always totally encouraging when I had like an artistic interest or, a, you know, wanted to do a painting or wanted to play drums. They were totally behind it. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, um, I wouldn't say they were, they spoiled me in any way. <laughs> like, like I had to play the drums for two and a half years before I finally got a, a proper drum kit. <laughs> you just had the one drum. <laughs> for, for Christmas. Yeah. Yeah. I had, I started off with one, one drum. I've still got it. It's on the shelf behind me. <laughs> oh, cool. But, but, uh, yeah, my parents were, I wanted to show in the book that, uh, uh, it's possible for somebody who who doesn't really come from the background that you know, normally associate uh, rock and rollers with, like let's say Johnny Thunders or <laughs> or, or, or uh, uh, Keith Richards or the guys in Booker T and the MGs. Uh, it w- those were those were people that I looked up to, but but my own background was so mild. I mean, like compared to some people I know. You know the the writer Michael Gilmore? No, uh, I don't. It, 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 well, he he he's an M I K A L Gilmore and he's he's uh, a features writer for Rolling Stone now. He's he's written for Rolling Stone for many years and his, he's the brother of Gary Gilmore. Uh-huh. I, I don't know if you remember Gary Gilmore, but he he was a uh, uh, a guy who murdered someone and then demanded to be executed for his crimes right by by firing squad right so but that's only the tip of the iceberg with michael gilmore's childhood and i i recently read a piece that he wrote and it was i mean it was it was so frightening and his whole life was so troubled and uh full of uh, disadvantages and stuff like that, that I, my own life, by comparison, I had so many advantages and so many, so much security. Mm-hmm. And, and it was like my life compared to his was like Mary Poppins or something. <laughs> uh-huh. But, but I felt like, well, people should know. People should know what my background is if they're going to read about everything else. Uh, I didn't didn't just like drop onto the Bowery. <laughs> <laughs>
crawl, crawl yeah. up from the sewers uh, onto the Bowery. Right. Right. No, it wasn't like that. I had like a good education. I had, and I still wanted to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's how you know it's real. You could, you probably could have been a lawyer if you wanted to, but you want to be a, a rock and roll dude. Yeah. Um, That's right. Well, speaking of that, let's uh, move on. It's kind of common knowledge that, you know, uh, first version of Talking Heads came out of RISD uh, art school. But um, going off what you were just saying, did you have to kind of um, convince your family that there would be some kind of prestige in doing this rather than just uh, doing art as a living rather than just um, doing it for the sake of being an artist? Well, you know, it wasn't it wasn't really me who convinced them. It was my art teacher, a guy named David Miller. He was, he's a very good painter himself, still is to this day. He lives, he lives up near, near Saratoga, New York. Ah, that's where at, I went to college. At, oh, did you go to Skidmore? I did, yeah. Well, well he, he taught painting at Skidmore oh, for wow. many, many years. Oh, cool. D- David Miller. And David, who knew my parents because David was in the Army Reserve, and my father was a, a, at that point point in his life, a general in the <laughs> Army Reserve. And, and uh, so David knew him, and he, he said to my father and m- my mother, when he, he, he suggested that I should go to art school, and my parents were like, oh, art school, how will he ever support himself, you know? Uh, and and uh, David Miller said, well, you know, the Rhode Island School of Design is not just any art school. <laughs> it's it's the Harvard of art schools. And, and my parents were like, oh, it's the Harvard of art schools. <laughs> well, I guess maybe if Chris wants to go, he could go. You know, so it, it, was, as, it was as easy as that. You just have to use the magic word, yeah. Harvard. <laughs> <laughs> That's genius. Um, yeah. Let's, can we talk about RISD? Uh, sure, I'd well, love to. So this, the portrait in the book, it sounds like it was truly an idyllic time. It's also when you met Tina. Yes. Um, who, I got to say, the vision of you meeting her for the first time, where she's like riding a, like a yellow bicycle and wearing a, a striped sailor shirt. I'm like, damn, honestly, that sounds, that sounds great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's what I thought. I thought... <laughs> Whoa. Uh, and um, uh, I had never seen her before. It was like the first day of my sophomore year, my second year, and Tina had transferred in from Barnard College. And uh, so she was one of the new kids. And I noticed right away <laughs> when, she, when she came by how, how uh, I guess you could say it was love at first sight, really, at least on my part. Yeah. <laughs> To, it, it took. I had to work a little bit on Tina to get her to reciprocate, <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, yeah, it hit me, you know, at, as she went rolled by on her motor uh, on her bicycle, and I I said I was sitting with this guy who is uh, one of the artist models at RISD, Charlie, well over six feet tall, big barrel chested guy, very well muscled and. Uh, and Charlie, Charlie, Char- some people said he had shell shock. Uh, there was so- there was something about him, but he was very friendly, and he referred to everyone he ever met as his friend. Uh-huh. He, he, uh, and he, I said, Charlie, did you see her? And he said, Oh, that's my friend Martina. Mm-hmm. And I thought, Oh, Martina. 
I've got to get to, I've got to get to meet her somehow. And then the next, next day, I went to a figure painting class, sophomore figure painting class, and, and, uh, Tina was in the class. Uh, I saw her on, on the other side of the class setting up her easel and her palette and paint box and everything. And I, um, at the end of the class, we were painting the figure, you know, who was, the teacher was a guy named Richard Merkin, who's quite a well-known painter. Sadly, not alive anymore, but he was actually on the cover of Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club <laughs> band. Oh, wow. Because he was friends with... Uh, the artist who did the, oh gosh, the artist who did the cover. And, and uh, he's right there next to Muhammad Ali, I think. <laughs> but, 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 but anyway, I looked across the room and, and we were painting and painting and I couldn't take my eyes off of Tina. And, and uh, at the end of the class, this guy I knew, uh, very effete, walked up to her and said, Oh, I can see you don't have any idea what you're doing. Oh God! <laughs> and I it's thought, negged. yeah, I thought, oh, here's my chance. So I walked over and I said, "Pardon my, uh, I apologize for my friend's, you know, bad behavior. <laughs> Clearly, he doesn't have any idea what he's doing." Nice. And, <laughs> uh, and and then I said, "I really like this class. Do you?" And she said, "Yeah, I like it." said, my name's Chris. She said, oh, my name's Tina. And that was, uh, that was how we met. Nice. <laughs> and, and you guys were, you were both studying visual art, specifically painting there? Yes, we, we had, uh, well, well, everybody's visual art at, at the Rhode Island School of Design, but uh, our major was painting. Yeah. Okay. You sele- select your major the second year, and we had, we had both selected painting as yeah. our major. I, I presume that you did not go to the school of art or school of design to major in rock band. So I had always wondered no. what it was that you were actually studying. <laughs> but but you know that uh, some of the best rock bands are uh, come from come from art school, and uh, some of the worst rock bands come from music school. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> I mean, I I guess I'm interested. It's funny you you said too in the book that um it wasn't you know maybe a couple of years into Talking Heads you came back to RISD and you were seemingly like kind of legendary like already just having you know been a band that is in New York and playing shows and like making stuff happen that must have felt yeah. kind of cool to like ha- get that sort of outsized reputation at your school. Yeah, it, it was, and you know you know the people. Uh People we knew in Providence that were still living there were really rooting for us, you know, and they they were very supportive, and it it, it made me feel great when we bet, went back to Providence and the people were excited about it. Uh, well, let's talk about early Talking Heads days. One of the things I I was always I always wondered is, um, you know, when you first started off, it was my my conception. It seemed like it was more of an idea than a band, and you know. Uh, Tina was just learning to play bass uh, when when you guys started, and uh, David was just learning even to sing. Molly, there was a funny anecdote uh, about David learning to sing that you like. He wanted to take. He was taking vocal lessons, and they made him sing something, and then he walked out and never took a vocal lesson again. Yes, the song was "Send in the Clowns." <laughs> it's very funny. I would love to hear David Byrne sing "Send in the Clowns," uh, but and you had learned drums earlier in your life and were were you know getting back into it. So at that point you were kind of probably the most technically accomplished in the band. 
T- Tina has said that, that I was. I, I, I never felt that I was the most <laughs> technically accomplished, but, but maybe I was for a little while anyway. <laughs> uh, was, was there a moment in those early days, like a particular song that you wrote or a rehearsal or a performance uh, where you really felt like it clicked and you were like, oh, we, there's something here? The very first song we ever wrote, it clicked. And that was Psycho Killer. That, that was the first song. Yeah. Uh, always impressed we, when the first song is such a banger. We, we, uh, we were still at the Rhode Island School of Design, still at RISD. And uh, David and I had a little band called The Artistics. Of course. Great and, name. And, Great name. Yeah. yeah. And the, the, the goal of The Artistics was to entertain our friends. And so we played, uh, you know that album by uh, that Lenny Kay compiled called Nuggets? Oh boy, do I know that, that uh, album. I love Nuggets. So we love that album too. This was in 1973. Uh, so we covered some of those songs. We covered like the Kinks, All Day and All Night. We covered uh, The Who, Can't Explain. We covered if, uh, just to Smokey do a, Robinson. Just to do a quick <laughs> Nuggets digression, just because you might be one of the only other people I talk to on this show who's familiar with it. Do you know that song Multi off the Nuggets compilation about the yeah. drummer with one arm and how he learns to drum again as a way yeah. of affirming himself? I just wanted I to bring sure that do. up. That's just a great song. <laughs> yes, it is. And I'm sure you would appreciate that as a drummer. Yeah, Multi. Don't Yeah, turn. yeah exactly. <laughs> well, anyway... Uh, so the idea was to entertain our friends, and we were doing these covers. And then one day, I think David and I were having a conversation. We were thinking maybe we should write some original songs. And and uh, if, shortly thereafter, he came knocking on the door of the painting studio that Tina and I shared uh, there on the RISD campus, and uh, he said, "I got." I got the beginnings of a song. <laughs> and and I, I said, oh, really? Cool. And he said, it's loosely based on Alice Cooper. Okay. I thought, wow. <laughs> wow. I thought, wow, because Alice Cooper was, you know, had a number one album at the right. time. I think it was called Billion Dollar Babies. Right. And, and so, um, it, you know, Alice Cooper's work was uh, very tongue-in-cheek. Mm-hmm. It wasn't serious. And s- this song that David had had begun uh but he came to us and he said i've got this song i wonder could you uh help me with it and and we said yeah yeah we dropped what we were doing and um he said it's called psycho killer (laughs) and i said whoa cool (laughs) and he, he um he played a little bit of it and i thought this is really good i like this and he said well i i i want the the middle eight the bridge section to be in a foreign language so it sounds like um the the narrator has has had some kind of psychotic disconnect or uh-huh. break or something where he suddenly lapses into a foreign language and so tina having a mother from france and having french spoken in the home volunteered to write it in french and david agreed he said thank you okay and she just sat down and she did it and um uh, I have it right here. It was. I've been told that um, the French that Tina wrote is is not the French that people speak like the kids speak today. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, the argo and the slang that they speak today. It was in a more classical French, and and 
the translation is what it translates into in English is what she said that night, what I did that night, <laughs> realizing, in other words, making real my hopes. I launched myself toward glory. <laughs> That's like and, French uh, poetry right yeah. there. Yeah, and, and it's also very psychotic sounding, <laughs> bombastic, you know. But but uh, it worked perfectly. And then I, I added, I added a couple more verses that I wrote j- just on the spot right there. Uh, and and we also came up with we were kind of brainstorming and Tina and I came up with the we are vain and we are blind and I hate people when they're not polite which was tagged on at the very end yes and uh, so all of that happened within uh, a period of three and three and a half hours and I thought holy Moses this <laughs> this really sounds good it's like a mashup of the Velvet Underground and Otis Redding, <laughs> and, and, and it was just, I was just hearing the vocals and David's acoustic guitar. I, we hadn't done the instrumentation yet, but I could tell, everybody could tell that it was really, like, good, and, yeah. and so, th- so that was when it clicked, right from the very beginning, and I, I thought, you know, we should do more of this, so we did. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, one of the things that I've always appreciated about Psycho Killer is that it almost comes off like like a novelty song, but given so directly and so seriously that it then like try it transcends what it is and or, uh-huh. or that that feeling of it and does become both silly and genuinely psychotic uh, uh-huh. in that in that way. So I yeah I don't know that's a, a interesting to hear about that. Uh, yeah, Molly, do we want to jump over jump into New York? Yeah. So you move you move to New York and you're kind of immersed in this scene, but also immediately start contributing to the scene too of these people who are at CBGB's, you know, the Ramones are around, all these other bands. And what struck yeah. me in your writing is that at least it seemed like you were kind of holding it down as like a nice normal person in a sea of like kind of jerks. <laughs> like not not that everyone was a jerk, but like, you know, you you end up on tour with Johnny Ramone, who sounds like kind of a pill. Uh, what, what was it like? And it, maybe you could just tell me whether this analysis are correct. Of just being like a nice guy in this rock and roll scene. Yes. Uh, David Johansson once famously uh, said to me, Chris, you're never going to make it in this business. You're too nice. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, well, you know, I, I love David Johansson, but we digress. Um, <laughs> it, oh, what was it like? It was, uh, it was so cool. You know, <laughs> I, I had always wanted to be, I, I had always wanted to break outside of my, uh, you know, what I consider to be kind of humdrum, suburban, bourgeois, lifestyle. And boy, did we do it when we lived on Christie Street and uh, frequented CBGBs practically every night that there was a band playing. In the early days, it was just on the weekends. And then it then it became like seven days a week, I think. Wow. And, and one great thing that Hilly did, which was very smart on his part, is from the very beginning, if you had ever played at CBGBs, even just one time, you didn't have to pay admission at the door. You could just come in for nice. free. So it became a real hangout for all the bands. I mean, all the the, the, the sort of band, the downtown rock and roll bands. And uh, 
I don't know if there were any uptown rock and roll <laughs> bands, but, but uh, the strokes came later. Yeah. Right. But, 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 but uh, it became the scene and, and uh, I, uh, I was probably the most outgoing member of, of Talking Heads. So I think I, I, uh, you know, would, I, well, I remember quite well, I would walk up and int- introduce myself to people I wanted to meet. Mm-hmm. And, uh, sometimes they were very warm and welcoming and other times they were kind of like, uh, they didn't get it that I wanted <laughs> to just say hi. Um, so, so there, there were a lot of people down at CBGB's that, um, we're sort of following the New York Dolls and, and everything had, ha, even though the New York Dolls were basically broken up at that time, they were still dressing like the Dolls and remembering all those great days at the great nights at the Mercer Arts Center. And, of course, before, and, and, before it collapsed. Right. And they were, they were living that kind of rock and roll lifestyle. There was heroin involved mm-hmm. and, and things like that. And, and I was not, well, those people, try as I might, did not really get talking heads. Uh-huh. They, they, they were kind of like, Johnny Thunders came up to us and, uh, after our first performance and said, are you guys a feminist band? <laughs> and, and I just said, yes. <laughs> because, uh, you know, we had Tina and we had just finished performing a song called The Girls Want to Be with the Girls. Of course. And, and, and so uh, I just said, yeah, we're a feminist band. But Johnny Ramone was perhaps the most difficult person I've ever had to uh, share a bus with, um, uh, share a backstage area with. He, he was... a. As we say in Kentucky, he was mean as a snake. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, the the anecdote about going to Stonehenge uh, when you were on tour with the Ramones in Europe and he just refused to leave the bus, I just thought that was the funniest thing. Yeah, he didn't get off the bus. and uh, he, In fact, he, w- he didn't even want us to stop there. <laughs> uh, uh, he he uh, thought it was a waste of time. He, actually, he, what he said was, it's just a bunch of fucking old rocks. Well, true, but, but they are very cool, right? <laughs> yeah. But Dee Dee said, no, Johnny. Dee Dee stood up for himself. No, Johnny, I want to see Stonehenge. So, <laughs> so we, all, we all went. Nice. Except for Johnny. I'm imagining the Ramones to, uh, arguing about Stonehenge. Yeah. Uh, but I, I had never, I had never, honestly, I had never been around such a curmudgeon as, <laughs> jo- as Johnny was in my entire life. I don't think any of us had. And it was just kind of disbelieving. Later in his life, he became, well, I would never say he became a nice guy. He became a much more, uh, he, he relaxed a bit. And, and he was not quite as uh, vituperous as he had been. <laughs> well, along those lines, um, you know, there is kind of in that uh, original scene there seems to me to be like a divide between the more like you know the real dirtbag presenting bands like the ramones and you know like the dead boys and uh those types of groups and maybe the more intellectual bands like talking heads or or patty smith or television and i was just wondering if that if it if you guys at that time felt like you were all all of you part of one thing or if cbgb was really just like the place that you all individually hung out or you know if you were all together doing pushing something forward or if it, every, if it was every man for himself. 
Well, basically, I guess it was every man for himself, but I, I did feel that, um, that we, we were part of a new vanguard of, of music coming out of New York City that was, uh, each band was very unique unto themselves. They, they didn't sound like each other. They weren't copying each other, really. They, they were um, the real thing. And, and I, uh, I was very happy to be part of that. And, and it really helped us, you know, uh, it helped to propel us forward. For example, when we, when we first did that, that, our first tour opening for the Ramones in uh, the UK and Europe in the spring of 77, uh, every show was sold out, packed. And, and like the kids would be lining up in the afternoon just so that they could get down front and get, you know, stand in front of the stage. And the, the Europeans were just very thirsty for, for anything coming out of New York, but especially if it, uh, if it came from CBGBs. Mm-hmm. And, and like the posters would say, Ramones, Talking Heads, New York Rock. <laughs> and, that's, and that's all they had to say, and the tickets would sell. Because we, the Ramones had one album out. We had only a, a seven-inch single out, Love Goes to a Building on Fire. Uh, but when it said New York Rock, that sold tickets. And uh, eventually it was New York Punk Rock. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but... And so we were lumped in with the punks, even though we weren't really punk. And I don't think any of the bands really cared to be called punk, but it was a marketing term. And when that marketing term ceased to uh, work for us, Seymour Stein of Sire Records, who was our, our record company president, said, oh, Talking Heads, they're not punk, they're new wave. Mm-hmm. And and the radio programmers who had previously said, uh, we don't play punk music. No, no, no. We only play good music. All of a sudden they could say, oh, they're new wave. That's when you add the oh, synthesizer. Oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, but uh, actually we didn't even have synthesizers yet. We had, uh, <laughs> J- Jerry had a CP70 Yamaha mm-hmm. uh, That little portable. bell bell type th- keyboard. No, no, uh, it's it's a, a ba- like a baby grand piano. But well, like the, the bell tones, the bell sounds. Oh, you know, oh, yeah. oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and he had a Farfisa mm-hmm. organ, and that's what we had. <laughs> uh, well, speaking of gear and uh, going to buildings on fire, I wanted to nerd out a little because I've I've played in very shitty bands in New York, and I, I'm always curious about what the logistics of being in a downtown band in the seventies were like, like uh, you said that you, you were touring a building once and you showed up to it and it was, and it was literally on fire. Yeah. That's, that's when I was looking for places to live uh, when I first moved to New York and I, I was looking for lofts all over, you know, uh, Tribeca, which was not like developed yet at the <laughs> yeah. time. And, and uh, Robert De Niro had uh, not moved in the film festival. Yeah, that's right. Uh, although Harvey Keitel was living there. <laughs> well, I'm sure but, but, at that time, Harvey Keitel was just as scary as any, encountering him on the streets would be just as scary as encountering any of the Ramones. No, he was real cool. He, he, uh, he always had a cigar. But, but, but anyway, uh, I looked there, I looked in the Lower East Side, and I looked over in Alphabet City because the price was right. And, uh, 
uh, the, one of the lofts I, I went to visit, uh, you know, I saw the ad in the New York Times industrial section and I, I looked. I went to see it, and it, yes, it was on fire. And no, nobody was calling the, the fire department. Nobody was coming to put it out. Nothing. It was just burning. <laughs> the house, the I house th- was burning I thought, down. I, th- I thought, maybe this is not the right neighborhood to bring Tina. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but when you eventually found a place, were you, able, you were able to just play and practice at any time in, inside yeah. the loft? Yeah, that was the idea of getting an industrial space, is there, there wouldn't be people living there at nighttime. Eventually there were, but not during our time. Um, no, we were the only people in the building uh, at nighttime, which is kind of creepy when you think yeah. about it. Yeah. We were up on the ninth floor, and a couple of times we did get stuck in the elevator. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm very more jealous. Than a, Someday I hope yeah. to uh, own a drum set in New York, but I think it'll be uh, more when I'm your age that I'll be able to afford that kind of luxury here. Uh, you're a drummer, are you? I play all sorts of stuff, but I just want to have all the instruments around in case I want to play them. Just in case. Yeah. Well, cool. <laughs> cool. And didn't, didn't your loft also, there was a fire there as well? There was a fire in, uh, let's see, we, we were on the ninth floor, and I think the fire was on the fifth floor, maybe. Yeah. But, but yeah, we came, we all had day jobs on 57th Street. Uh, Tina worked at Henry Bendel's, which was a very, you know, high-end woman, women's department store, designer stuff. Uh, David worked at an ad agency uh, running the stat machine. <laughs> uh, and, and I was a stock boy at a, a store called Design Research, all of us on 57th Street. And uh, we would often take the subway downtown after work together. And one night we did that, and when we came out uh, of the subway station at the 2nd Avenue and Houston Street, we came out and we could see our building in the distance, and there was firemen and ladders going up and flames coming out of the windows. and. Oh man, it was a really bad feeling. And, uh, we moved towards the building and the fire, fire chief or whoever he was said, sorry, you can't come any closer. And we said, but that's our place. We, we live there. He said, come back in a couple of hours. Let's go. <laughs> and so, uh, so we went to CBGB's <laughs> and, um, it was, it was only like six, six thirty in the evening, maybe seven. And uh, uh, it was empty except for Hilly Crystal. And Hilly, we told Hilly what happened, and he said, "Here, have a seat." And he poured us each a beer, and then he, he said, "Here, I'm gonna I'm gonna feed you." And he, he <laughs> people make jokes about this the chili at CBGB's. I think Hilly was living on it. Oh my but, god! But anyway. Uh, he always had a big pot of chili going in the back, and he went back and he got us three bowls of chili, and we ate it with gusto. <laughs> it, it was very good, and we just we killed a couple hours, went back to our loft, and they had the fire put out. Unfortunately, our our loft was not damaged, but the fumes were so bad because w- what the fire had been was a whole like loft full of polyester suits. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> had caught on fire, and you can imagine what that smelled like. So it was a few days before we could actually move back in. 
That's insane. Yeah. I have to say from the, the chili anecdote, I have to just compliment you. This book is full of like treats and like food and drinks. And uh-huh. I have to say like no one, I've read a, a lot of rock memoirs at this point And like food is very much taken a back seat. So I just, I appreciate like food, food is not really the priority. I think for a lot of people when they're writing their stories, but there's so many just interesting, like, you know, treats from around the world that you talked about from the chili at CBGB's to like, you know, going to Europe and, and having like yeah. strawberries and cream. So I, I just, I just want to say, I appreciate the, the food focus because it was kind Thank of a, you. a reprieve. Thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed that. Cause I, I have some of my, uh, detractors, shall we say of, <laughs> I've noticed have objected to all my, like, you know, uh, what I had for dinner and what, <laughs> what, you know, I had to drink and stuff like that, as if that weren't important. It's very important. You, you know, Molly, it's very important, especially when you're on the road. Oh, you can't, absolutely. Like, you can't, like, stop and make dinner yourself. You have to go to a restaurant. And, and as, you, as you tour, you learn where you want, where the best restaurants in any particular town are, and yeah. you go back there, and it's like, a, it's like part of touring. I, yeah. I can confirm. The other podcast I produce uh, tours semi-frequently, nothing extreme, like six shows or something, and even in, on a six-show tour, your mood, it, your mood is the story of meal to meal and whether or not it satisfies you at the, at the at yeah. point. Yeah, you can't just eat the lasagna backstage every night. <laughs> um, the the other food <laughs> anecdote I wanted to bring up was this incredible scene that uh, that you guys had with Lou Reed early on in the band's career when you were meeting with him and he was maybe going to make a record with you and he was sitting talking to you, kind of critiquing, talking heads and you know making recommendations all while he was eating a quart of vanilla ice cream. Haagen-Dazs. Yeah, yeah, he um, he had that. He said to, you know, he had no furniture in his place except for a couch. So <laughs> Tina, Tina and David and I sat on the couch. He did, he, he did have a bookshelf with one book on it, the, the physician's desk reference guide. Oh, boy. <laughs> okay. And, and, uh, and his, uh, he sat down. So we were, David and Tina and I were sitting on the uh, couch and Lou was sitting on the floor, and then he, he got up, he went to the refrigerator, he came back with a quart of ice cream, haagen and he said, oh, I'm going to need a spoon. And <laughs> Tina said, I'll get you a spoon. She got up and walked over to his little kitchenette and opened the drawer, and there was one spoon in there, <laughs> and it was all bent and blackened. Oh, God. And Tina thought, oh, God. But she took it to Lou, and he just ate his ice cream with it. <laughs> And, Unbelievable, uh, and uh, he didn't offer us any, though. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I would want it with that one spoon. Yeah, yeah. that I thought I just that scene was was great, and then and then he ate a whole stack of pancakes like the next morning or a few hours later. I would have never yeah. taken Lou Reed for someone with a huge uh, this, this, sweet tooth. This is this is the middle of the night, and 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 uh, as the sun came up, we were thinking we gotta go, we gotta go, <laughs> and and um, Lou said. Let's go for breakfast, and and so we said okay, and we um, there was a diner uh, on the corner by his apartment, which is like Caddy Corner across from Bloomingdale's of all places. <laughs> so we went into this diner, and Lou ordered a, a big stack of pancakes with maple syrup and 
He ate all of those too. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Should we yeah. should we talk about uh maybe the music itself? Yeah, let's of, talk about the- Talking Heads cuz yeah. I think there's some interesting details in the book. Um Yeah, sure. One one thing I really liked from that that you said in the book was talking about uh especially once you started getting more influences from you know, wor- you know, world music, music from other cultures. You said that you were rock musicians who were looking for a way out of what had become a very predictable formula for playing and performing rock and roll. Was that always yeah. kind of top of mind when you were writing songs? Was getting out of a formula or trying to subvert a formula? Uh, I think. I think at first we were trying to figure out what the formula was. Yeah, and then, <laughs> and then, then we. Uh, you know, I don't know that we ever completely figured it out, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, and uh, but but one thing we did learn that 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 it was it was good to do something that was uh, unexpected, mm-hmm. like, like that would take people by surprise. And and fortunately for us, that was a period of time in the late seventies, early eighties, where you could do something that was kind of off the wall. Uh, you know, different and unexpected, and people would like it. They would, uh, they would buy the records, mm-hmm. and they would get played on the radio, possibly. <laughs> and uh, you know, people were very open-minded about popular music or music in general. Like, like that's how a band like Talking Heads could tour with the Ramones, and people would like both bands and enjoy both bands. Now, granted. You know, we were the opening act, and so maybe maybe we were a little less familiar, but but to the people, but they still and you could tell they enjoyed it very much because there were like multiple encores and cheering and you know stomping and everything, <laughs> uh, and and then the Ramones would come on and just slay them, <laughs> but but uh, yeah, those were good times because. In, in, Particularly in Europe, the radio stations in Europe would—they didn't have a format. It wasn't like we play country mm-hmm. or or we play metal or we play dance music. We no, it was all mixed up. And, and uh, thank goodness for that because that enabled a band like us to uh, reach our audience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think one of the fun things about being a serious Talking Heads fan is, and it's captured visually and stop making sense is that you see the band at each stage progress and add new things. And it is all of a piece of the talking heads. You feel like at least from a fan level, you never feel like you lose that central trio and then, uh, um, quad, quad, thank you. Quadro quartet. Uh, quartet, (laughs) Yeah. As these new elements get added on and the band continues to explore its sound. But I guess I was wondering what that, experience was like for you as you move from you know a three-piece to a 10-piece 12-piece in like three or four years yeah i I think the most we had was nine Nine, on stage at at one time but uh it was very exciting i i it was not really my idea (laughs) i I must say to to add uh the additional members to the band after you know after we put out remain in light Mm -hmm. But um, I, I soon realized that it was a great idea, <laughs> a- and uh, those those additional members: Bernie Worrell, Steve Scales, Dolette McDonald, Adrian Ballou, and Busta Cherry Jones. 
they they really um, they really brought it mm-hmm. to the, to to Talking Heads and, mm-hmm. and and to the stage, and we uh, we we suddenly made a quantum leap from being a, a nervous kind of <laughs> uh, maybe maybe a little idiosyncratic band to being a full blown funk outfit yeah. with with, with uh, touches of idiosyncratic idiosyncrasy yeah <laughs> yeah yeah well if i could be maybe a little more pointed about that question i i was wanted to ask your opinion on uh one of my favorite clips talking heads clips which is um I, i'm a bit of a uh like a a fish head but for the talking heads a head head in which i don't uh-huh. even have my favorite songs i have my favorite recordings of the favorite songs so this is one i've always loved which is uh born under punches in 1980 in rome uh, this whole concert's on YouTube. It's a, it's a really amazing watch. But there's this I agree. This one I agree. moment in it where the band's sounding great. It's sounding amazing. One thing that always jumped out at me is this point in which the song starts with this great, like, you and Tina doing that nodic bass line drum groove. then builds this part where, and I think maybe you can hear this. I'm trying to share my screen audio. Let me hear it. Tell me if you can hear this. So there's this part where it's all of a sudden it's Tina playing the bass line and Busta playing a slap bass solo over it. But, you know, when I first kind of realized what was going on in this song, I couldn't help but thinking, like, I don't know, two, ba- two ba- bass solo over bass line, isn't that a, isn't that a, little, a little much or something? I, I don't know. And I guess that's what I'm, I'm trying to get at is, you know, how that, that felt for, you know, you and Tina as you, you go over a little bit in the, bo- in the book, the feeling yeah. of, of no longer maybe being the, the dry, having the hands on the wheel of the band. Uh huh. Well, um, yeah, it was. It, I, my feeling was that uh, it was an attempt to marginalize Tina, mm-hmm. but she didn't let that happen because <laughs> she's just a star, mm-hmm. uh-huh. you know. And and Busta was a star too. And uh, may he rest in peace. Mm-hmm. He, he he was. He helped us put. He he put us in touch with Bernie Worrell. He put us in touch with Dolet. He put us in touch with Steve Scales. We already knew Adrian Ballou. But uh, Busta was, you know, Busta had played with Brian Eno, and he, he, he had played with Chris Spedding, and they had a little short-lived band called The Sharks, I think. <laughs> and he, he, had, he had been around. He was from Memphis. He was a real funky cat, <laughs> and uh, we all liked him. Uh, but it... it you notice he was not on the next tour because because it just it seemed as if it seemed like like maybe unnecessary you know uh, and and Tina could hold it down by herself <laughs> yeah. in the ba- bass department yeah and I, I actually uh, uh, Chris I actually opened my book with a scene maybe you noticed uh, a scene from that Rome concert the the first chapter oh yes and and that. That's when, uh, you know, that, that particular show, uh, st- 
There are a few others, but that sticks out in my mind as one of those pinnacles of, of uh, you know, my talking heads experience. And, and the great thing about it is, is you can watch it on YouTube and sort of relive it. It's a, would, it's a great recording on YouTube. I'll put the link uh, in the episode description. If, you, if any listener likes talking heads, that's like my recommendation for definitive video experience of them. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I, I do your your uh, descriptions of like when the shows are really good. It see, it almost sounds like like achieving enlightenment. Like, is that what it felt like? Like you seem to like almost yeah. reach a like higher plane of consciousness by like just grooving well, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's it's true. Uh, it's 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 not hard. It's not easy to describe. It's hard to describe, but it's it's like a feeling of. Uh, it's a feeling of great exhilaration, but it's also a feeling of, of some kind of uh, re- reaching some kind of state of consciousness that, that um, is communal. Mm. And, and it's like, like I imagine a, real, a really good church experience would be, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a gospel church, not one of those uptight Baptist, <laughs> uh, not one of those snake handler churches. <laughs> But uh, but uh, you know uh, it's a it's it's a feeling of being part of a great, fantastic uh, experience that's that's shared mm-hmm. with with amongst the band and also with the audience and it's just it's very elevating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we we only have a a few more minutes. Um, yeah, let's talk let's talk about Tom uh, Tom Club because I mean that that is a side project that happens kind of when everyone else is doing side projects. And also if I can remember correctly, your manager or someone told you, you have $2,000 in the bank, so you need to do something. <laughs> yes. The, uh, the remain in light tour, the one we were just describing in Rome, uh, it was a great, great tour, historic even, but it didn't make any money. Because <laughs> a lot of people to pay. Because, uh, yeah, there were a lot of people to pay and hotels and plane, airplane tickets and, and so on. So insurance. Mm-hmm. Did you know you have to take out insurance? <laughs> so so, so um, we had no money left. And David uh, had announced, uh, not directly to us, but through our manager, that he was, he was going to do this thing, which ended up being called the Catherine Wheel mm-hmm. with, with Twyla Tharp. Uh, a very interesting project and uh, he was going to be doing that and he didn't know how long it was going to take. And so when Jerry heard this, Jerry said, well, if David's going to do a solo album, I'm going to do a solo album. So then Jerry was off doing a solo album and Tina and I thought, well, what are we going to do? And uh, our manager went to Seymour Stein to get the money for yet another Seymour, solo album Mm -hmm. and Seymour said no no I can't possibly give everybody in the talking heads a solo album (laughs) that's like kiss (laughs) (laughs) and so so uh, I uh, we kind of we kind of took offense to that you might say but in retrospect I understand his predicament Um, but our manager is a smart guy and he went to his buddy Chris Blackwell of Island Records, and and he said Chris and Tina would like to do. We knew Chris Blackwell a bit from recording 
two albums already done at his studio at Compass Point. Mm-hmm. And, we, and we, we were on a friendly basis with him. And he said, oh, well, Gary, that's our manager. Gary, I understand the value of a good rhythm section. <laughs> what, what, do you, what do you say, Chris and Tina, come down to Compass Point and record a single? And if I like it, then they can do a whole album. And we jumped at that because... A, we love Chris Blackwell and Island Records, and and B, uh, it was really nice to just be able to think of a single instead of a, a whole album. Uh-huh. You know, just concentrate on this one thing. So we went down there, and we we uh, Lee Perry was supposed to be our producer. We 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 met with Lee Scratch. We met met with him in, at the. Howard Johnson's hotel on Eighth <laughs> Avenue in New York, where he was visiting, and he said, "Yeah, man, we can do it. It will be, it will be great." So, uh, so we were very excited. Like, oh boy, we're going to work with Lee Perry. Well, we got all ourselves and all our gear down to Compass Point in Nassau, Bahamas, and and Lee didn't show up, <laughs> and he and he didn't show, and he didn't show, and and finally, after two weeks. Our manager, Gary Kerfers, got him on the phone and said, Scratch, what's up? Chris and Tina have been waiting for you for two weeks. And he said, well, man, it's about the money. And, and Gary said, oh, yes, it's about the money. Okay, how much do you want? And he sa- Scratch said, no problem. I only want $1,000 an hour. Oh, God. <laughs> and, and so uh. so Gary, Gary said, well, Scratch, it sounds to me like you're trying to price yourself out of this gig. Mm-hmm. And he, he, Scratch said, no problem, man. We make the album in six hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just, just so, play it through twice. So, so we went in instead with uh, a young Jamaican cat named Stephen Stanley, who was barely into his 20s at that time, uh, but super, uh, super great. And uh, as an engineer, and also as a just a, a a guy to hang out with, and uh you know some engineers are very serious and studious, and others they've got all that seriousness and studiousness out of the way already, and they're like wild men uh-huh. so Stevie was like that, always kidding, always joking, dancing on the console, I mean actually <laughs> standing up on the can console and dancing to the music and i mean i think it comes through in the out al- that album because it that album sounds like a party so yeah yeah <laughs> well that that was the idea it was to make uh make a record that that w- our friends could party to <laughs> and uh and that would hopefully get played in places like the mud club and danceateria yeah and paradise I paradise to, garage i wanted to ask that because you know it, the interesting thing about the um one of the interesting things about the tom 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 Club to me, as compared to Talking Heads, is you know at this point Talking Heads is you know still firmly firmly in the canon, but it has kind of entered the classic rock band lane. Well, the interesting thing about Tom Tom Club is you still hear those songs sampled and mixed in to like club music even today. And yeah, it, I don't know if you were planning this at the time, but I guess I'd like to hear what you feel about them. Um, you know, <laughs> ha- kind of the enduring legacy of those Tom Tom Club songs becoming you know mixed in so many great classic different songs and having this kind of life beyond the original music that you right. know as continuously beloved as T- talking heads is today 
still kind of just exists as like, oh, those are talking head songs. You don't hear, you might still hear Genius of Love played at the club. You're not going to hear, you know, uh, Great Curve played at the club. Probably not. Uh, but, but, but there was a time when you did. Uh, <laughs> but, but, uh, yeah, Genius of Love is, uh, it's one of those kind of miracles to me. It's like a, a magic, it was just, it, and wordy rapping hood and and that whole first album it was just magical to me mm-hmm. and uh everything everything just worked out so well it, it wasn't like we didn't have to work hard on it we did work very hard uh and but but we we somehow achieved this uh we achieved basically what everybody wants to achieve on their first album <laughs> which is critical and artistic and financial success yeah we had it we had we had it all and then when we when we went back to new york we we could hear our own music in in the mud club or larry levan doing a mega mix at the paradise garage that went on for half an hour oh that's so cool you know (laughs) and uh the the this is when i thought that i I thought it doesn't get any better than this. This is what it's all about. Yeah, you know? that is that is so cool. And also, uh, recording in the Bahamas doesn't didn't sound so uh, like such a pain either. That it was wonderful. Yeah, it was w- wonderful. I I we still have our little place down there, and we we I wish I could go right now, but we, <laughs> but 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 the. Uh, the studio's no no longer there, unfortunately. I, I wish it were, but uh, you know, it's hard to keep a, a bona fide recording studio open these days. It, it, yeah, businesses. This is a bit of a, a tangent, but it seemed like there was a whole kind of Caribbean rock scene in the '80s that, unfortunately, no longer is there. Like we were just covering Duran Duran uh-huh. uh, here or on this show a few episodes ago, and they were talking about recording at the uh, the Air Studios in Montserrat. And yes, it, yes, it's maybe it was one of those uh, boom bust decadent eighties things, but it, 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 I was just wondering if, if you know, it also felt like there were a lot of rock musicians down there, and it, not just you guys around that time. Uh, well, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. Yes, lived they there. also. Yes, I remember that from our that, progress. Uh, P- Peter Frampton lived there. Robert Palmer lived there. Uh, the guy from Hot Chocolate, Errol Errol Brown, lived there. Um, Jimmy Cliff lived there. Of course. I mean, it was it was um, it was a place where uh, I think they a lot of European guys actually went there because they didn't want to pay taxes. <laughs> so that's, I mean, quite frankly, but it was also very nice, uh, 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 quiet, and uh, they had they didn't have the problem that they later developed with crack cocaine and stuff yet. Mm-hmm. Um, it was it was a really good vibe, and and all kinds of bands would come through Compass Point from from um, you know Brian Ferry and the Rolling Stones to Molly Hatchet uh-huh. uh, uh, and Iron Maiden. I mean, it was it was crazy. Yeah. Ex- uh, I, I mean, um, ACDC did. Uh, we were working in the. There were two studio. Eventually, there were two studios, Studio A and Studio B. And well, ACDC was in Studio B doing Studio A, doing Back in Black. We were in Studio B doing Remain in Light. It was like, <laughs> you know, it was really quite something. Yeah, 
Uh, it's a killer double feature of albums. Truly. Yeah. I just wanted to to say, I mean, once again, this book is incredible. Everyone listening to this podcast should buy this book. Um, there's some like deep cut, amazing anecdotes in it that I think are really entertaining. But also, I was just struck by how you write about all this stuff. Some of which, you know, especially stuff with David Byrne, I think could be, you know, painful memories or memories of of you know, kind of hurtful things done. But I, I just found it remarkable that you wrote all, about all of this without bitterness. Like, I think there's a oh. sense of kind of like uh, equanimity in the way that you wrote about it that, that I found really interesting. Th- thank you for noticing that because <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm not bitter. Mm-hmm. You can probably tell that I probably don't seem like a very bitter guy <laughs> to you. But I'm not, uh, quite, quite honestly. And uh, yes, we had some difficult moments, but we also had some awesome, inspiring moments. And uh, I, in my book, I, I prefer to remember those. Yeah. 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 Remain in love. <laughs> and the only other thing, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but Chris and I are um, podcast hosts. We also just got married. You've been married. You for, did. Yeah. Uh, you've been married to Tina for over 40 years uh, we had our 43rd anniversary in June. Congratulations. Congratulations. Uh, any advice? Thank you. <laughs> uh, my, advi- my, my advice to a lovely young couple such as yourselves is to uh, do whatever it takes to keep the romance alive. And one way to do that is to maintain your sense of humor <laughs> and, and always, always try to get your partner to chuckle or even guffaw <laughs> whenever possible. Yeah. Great. That's a, yeah. That sounds like a good, a I, good recipe. I don't think that's going to be too difficult for us. No, I don't think so. <laughs> well, then let's wrap it there. I will, uh, I'll spare you the, the ending the pattern outro. For, outro patter for our, our show. Chris France, Thank you so much Thank for you. stopping by the pod. We really enjoyed talking to you. The book is Remain in Light. Remain in Love. Remain, the book is Remain in Love. The album is Remain in Light. Remain, <laughs> the album is Remain in Light. Get the name of this the podcast n- is And Introducing. <laughs> <laughs> Fabulous. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Okay, bye. Have, a, right, good, bye. have a good rest of the day. Great. Thank you so you, much. You too. And that was our interview with Talking Heads, Tom Tom Club drummer, Chris France. What a sweetheart. He's great. He rocks. He rocks. Yeah, he, uh, he and Tina both. Just uh, lo- what a lovely couple. And what a great way to uh, <laughs> to spend your life playing music <laughs> with, your, with your spouse. Playing music with your spouse. Holding down the rhythm section yeah. with the, the woman and or man you love. Yes, lovely. We I, love to see it. I wish we had a, a little more time with him. Molly and I both had a few more questions that we wanted to get into, but who knows? Maybe we can uh, develop this relationship and get, get, get Chris on a stream or something sometime. <laughs> Lower him back. Yes. But the uh, book or, is real. I don't, I don't, I would say I don't recommend all the books that we read, mm-hmm. uh, but this one is actually good and it's new and uh, you should, you should definitely buy it and read it. And you said that Tina is writing a book as well. Yeah. Uh, as referenced in the book, Tina is writing a book of her own, which uh, I will just have to read as well. Well, maybe we can get <laughs> Tina on the pod when that comes out. Uh, one thing that we didn't get into so much uh, that is contained within the book is kind of the, um, the frictions that Chris and Tina had uh, with David Byrne in the, the later periods of the, 
banned, and that was the stuff that certainly made the most headlines when this came out. You know, yeah. Walter had a whole article that was like, here's the eight bits of dirt that you need to know about David Byrne from uh, from Chris France's new book. Uh, well, and- I, I knew that... Uh- I figured with the launch of this book that that would be like the hook for most coverage. And so I kind of wanted to like talk about other stuff. Yeah. And I was, I wanted to hear his perspective of the stuff that he and Tina were doing, especially like the Tom Tom. I'd kind of rather talk about the Tom Tom club stuff than being like, so dish about David. Yeah. <laughs> but we know you listeners probably also want to hear that. And Molly did relay a fairly, uh, hilarious segment to me. So in interest of getting just a little juice, uh, squeezable juice in this episode, uh, Molly. Do you want to do you want to relay that segment yeah. that, you, that you told me? I'll just I'll just read it from the the book because this was one of the sections that made me like start <laughs> laughing uncontrollably. This is uh, from when they are they just released their first album, Talking Head seventy seven. They were going on some like mini tours on the East Coast and stuff. Um, so they were in Woodstock, New York, uh, opening for Charlie Mingus's big band. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> Charlie, Charlie Mingus. Give me some Mingus do. Uh, some, some friends. Okay. So we'll get into it. Some friends who were very hot interior designers, Ronnie <laughs> and Victoria Boris. So we could stay at their country house just outside of Woodstock. We did our sound check and went to a nearby middle Eastern restaurant for dinner and to pass some time. Uh, n- late seventies, middle Eastern, Eastern restaurant in a, in Woodstock, New York. It must've seemed very advanced. exotic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, the Tina sister Laura and Lee Blake had come from New York with us at the end of dinner Lee had the idea to play the game killer where you draw lots to select a killer and the rules are that none of the other players know who the killer is he kills you by making eye contact and winking when no one else is looking if he winks at you you wait a little while and then say I'm dead the first person to identify the, the killer wins I understand this game is mafia uh, or you know maybe a, a variation I, of 7-Up okay. isn't that one that oh yeah, yeah yeah it's like murderous 7-Up yeah anyway uh, they enjoyed a few rounds until the last round went on for too long until someone said, hey, nobody's died. That's when half of us guessed simultaneously that David must be the killer. <laughs> he had been unable to make eye contact with any of us long enough to wink, which explained why he had never been killed either. We all laughed explosively, especially David, who suddenly began to choke and change color. <laughs> it was scary. At Jerry's urging, Laura, who was closest to him, managed to help him to his feet and very effectively administer the Heimlich maneuver. She was so effective that not only did she unblock David's windpipe, but she caused him to projectile vomit his baba ganoush like a fire hose right across the room. The other diners in the room were paying attention now, but trying not to look. A very flustered waiter asked our table to please leave. I said, but we haven't paid. He said, that's okay. Just please go. I don't know who gave David the car keys, but he backed Tina's car right into a 300-year-old stone wall. Oh, what a lovely little scene. <laughs> I do feel like, you know, the pain and heartache of of working with someone as uh, kind of antisocial as David yeah. is probably tough. But it does sound like a Frasier episode. Yes, that like, is that is very Frasier-esque. Working with him seems like a, a Frasier t- a time. I think that's also like the perfect scene of like why we love doing these podcasts because it is so funny to think of a band and, and especially a person who has uh, achieved such like lauded pop culture status as like you know one of the the creative gods of american culture yeah as david byrne uh in such a funny uh goofy scenario uh, uh, a totally um 
It's what not scatological refer, refers to to shit, but whatever. Whatever, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, vomitological, um, vomit, vomit, vomitological situation. <laughs> yes, it's just very fun. Oh god! And then the thing about eye contact too. Yeah, it's it's very it's very yeah, very he, funny. He, David Byrne is incapable of playing uh playing mafia. killer. Yeah, I mean it. It is just one of those things that I, I guess whatever your your priors are on David Byrne, that kind of confirms a lot of them to me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the perfect button of backing the car into yeah. a three hundred. <laughs> Anyway, so we, I wanted to get that in here at the end just because it made me laugh, and I hope it makes you laugh. It's great. Uh, but with that, shall we move confidently into the end part of this episode? Let's go. Uh, these have been two great, the last two episodes back-to-back, uh, talking to Chris France about uh, Talking Heads and Tom Tom Club and Dan Beckner on Guided by Voices. We love having musicians on the pod. Uh, we hope to do that more um going forward especially now as we're worming our way onto pr lists for books oh yeah that come out send us that sweet pr emails pdfs yes free pdfs <laughs> pdfs oh, of galleys we know how COVID to, means they can't send real books uh, right now we, we know how to open pdfs so send them we do send them to us we do jack we do. um so uh but we've got some Great we've got, programming a, we've got some uh, listener. This is a popular listener request. Will be our next episode. A popular listener request. And is that just you and me? Uh, that's just you and me. Great. We're gonna yeah. go a little bit back back to basics, uh, but we've got great stuff planned through the fall and into the end of the year. So stick around. Stick with us. Um, follow me on Twitter at say what again. Follow me on Twitter at Miss Molly Mary. I'm rated. Uh, follow the show on Twitter at. At and intro pod, or send us an email at and introducing pod at gmail.com. Molly has become much more aggressive about replying to emails. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you can find a, a clips of the show on YouTube at youtube.com slash and introducing podcast. Um, oh boy, and introduce it. Yeah, youtube.com slash and introducing podcast. And as always, find us on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash and dash intro dash. Pod. Also, shout out to our uh, amazing motion graphics designer, Wagner Coop, who has done the incredible looking visuals for the YouTube channel. And one last thing, speaking of uh, YouTube and Twitch and live stream stuff, uh, this will come out in a matter of hours from right now. It's early <laughs> Wednesday afternoon. If so you've listened to it. If you're listening to, to it now, it's, it's not it's too right, late. It's happening now. If you're listening to this, it's not too late. <laughs> Thursday, what is tomorrow? Thursday, August 27th. Thursday, August 27th, 2020. Molly and I, in front of the show, Matthew Perpetua, will be hosting on twitch.tv slash thechriswade a music video power hour of all-time greatest hits VMA's performances, Video, video performances. Music Awards. Yes, the MTV Video Music Awards, which are coming up in some this kind Sunday? of distanced way, which I'm sure is going to be horrible. I can't wait to watch. Um, yeah, we should watch. I don't know if we can. I don't know. If we we get might MTV. not watch. <laughs> Who knows? Anyway, but we're, we're definitely going to be watching the Power Hour that we do. Uh, it's going to be it's going to be fun, and more importantly, it's going to be at around 8 p.m. Eastern. Around 8 p.m. Eastern and uh, Thursday, August 27th, twitch.tv slash the Chris Wade. And then we'll be rolling right out of that into last night RNC convention coverage over on twitch.tv slash Chapo Trap House. Uh, that's it for this episode. We'll talk to you in about two more weeks with another story of music and music writing. And Baba uh, Until then, take me to the river. Uh, bye-bye. Bye-bye.